The Association of Mature American Citizens is an organization dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending our freedoms and securing our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, entertainment, and special insurance rates. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience in our quest for conservative principles. Sign up now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Victor. And for a limited time, get a free gift membership for someone who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference with AMAC. Join today at AMAC.US slash Victor and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. Hello to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Welcome to the Friday edition where we do a news roundup for the week. And we've got a lot on our agenda this week. We're going to take a look first at the state of history in our country, in and out of universities, the nuclear ambitions of Putin, our border situation, and finally, Ron DeSantis's many phases of Ron DeSantis. He's been inserting himself a lot in the news lately. I would like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution, and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We will get right to the agenda today, but first let's listen to these messages, and we'll be right back. Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzlestick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. And Victor, I hope that things are going well for you today. We've got a lot of news on our agenda. Was there anything on your mind before we start? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I am getting turning the corner on my... 150-year-old house rehab project that I've waited 40 years to do. And suddenly I'm 90% done in finding every knob and tube serpent in this stupid house. And <laughs> it's 90% Romac. I cannot believe it. No more circuit breakers going off. And I'm just a week away from putting a beautiful 240-amp new panel in. Eight. Oh, nice. Then I have eight buildings, eight two garages, an old barn, an old packing shed, and they were all, they're all rewired now. And mm. I am connecting underground conduits, getting all the wires out 500 feet. And I'm going to put it on a brand new 400 amp ag panel. So that is good news. And guess what? I had two ancient septic tanks that my great grandfather made out of concrete pipe. I won't get into the grossness of it. <laughs> but I decided to say, you know what, I'm going to go out and get a gargantuan 1,500-gallon huge cement monolithic thing, and then I'm going to put it out so it's never in the yard with a 100-foot leech line, and then I'm going to get a huge underground sump pump and pump the stuff at high speed so my septic system will be comparable to a gas station. Yeah. Uh, or a restaurant. And then, then I'm not done. I've got completely finished tearing off layer after layer of roof, getting rid of putting plywood on the one by fours, putting a 50 year presidential roof on. And then I got rid of 1920s insulation that was four feet deep with a collapsed roof on top of it. Gone, all swept, nice. waiting for new cellulose insulation coming in. And then I'm sick and tired of all this poor water pressure with a little measly one-inch line of galvanized <laughs> pipe that's corroded inside with calcification and breaks up with tree roots. So I'm getting a two-inch plastic line from my brand-new two-year-old pump down not 90, not 120 feet, but 440 feet with a water table right at uh, 90 feet. And I am bringing that, I'm making it kind of like the beltway in Washington, the freeway. I'm taking this pipe and going around the circumference of my house and tying in to my outdoor faucets in the house at various locations with the idea that it's going to mm. put so much pressure. And then they took this beautiful redwood siding that paint, I painted it a couple of times myself, so it wasn't a good underline, but they sandblasted it, they washed it, and they finished painting it. They removed all the ancient chimneys that were there from the 19th century mm, nice. that were collapsing. And my method of just knocking them in and having them fill up all down two and a half stories to the uh, crawl space worked. So I can envision for the first time in my 68 years that this house 
even though superficially, when you look at it, it looks okay. It was a fraud of a Timken house because the wiring and the roofing and the water system and the sewage were not up to snuff. And I've just finished the foundation. So I can say to, when I go out of this world, I can tell my grandfather's ghost, just like Augustus said, he said, I inherited a city of clay, mud brick, brick, brick yeah. all with various material. And I left it as marble. I'm going to leave mm -hmm. this and then somebody will probably sell it, but that doesn't matter. No, but this is the first time you sound excited about it. I do. I'm turning the corner. <laughs> and my mother, my dear mother, who died too young, and she, when the last year she said, oh, Victor, what are we going to do? We don't have any money. The farm's going. My salary's subsidizing. That. And that house, that house that I grew up, your father grew up, my grandfather grew up, my great grand. what are you going to do? And I said, I'll take care of it. And mm -hmm. I did do a lot of improvements with remodeling, but I did it the What's the word? In the opposite fashion, I should have done the fundamentals first and made, you know, the wood floors and the new walls and, and all of the uh, tearing out walls and making room. That should have been last. But now I did the last show be first. It's, it's done. Almost. It's hard. It's hard to predict what an old house will want. So maybe you did it in the right order. You just don't know it. It was livable, but it was a fake livable. In other words, yeah. every six months, the sweet tank. Every when my daughters would turn on their hair dryers, the circuit breakers would go out. I'd smell funny burning smells. Uh, I'd go up and I'd find dead animals coming through, you know, birds and mice coming through vents that were left open or fans that didn't work or a roof would leak. No, mm. not any longer. I, I solved that problem. I was obsessed <laughs> with it. And I'm going to be on the road to pay for this for the next mm, six weeks, every weekend. Mm, Speaking or writing. And I'm writing more than ever because, uh, but I did what I was here. I was supposed to do. That was my job to yeah. take this relic of a house and leave it as a livable modern dwelling. And it was all built of redwood. I mean, yeah. redwood four by six, found, uh, six by six foundation, redwood walls, one by 12, redwood siding on behalf of that, redwood eaves. So the whole house, you know, they don't build them that way. It's just yeah. a, a redwood, solid redwood house. It's wonderful. All right, Victor. So let's turn to our subject today. Um, you mean people I don't want to listen to my neurotic obsession? <laughs> no, it sounds like things are turning around. So we're happy to hear it. And something different for Friday, too. But let's um, talk about your Hoover Institution has a new um, program that it's starting on history. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to us about the status of history in and out of the university. Well, for an e academic Eeyore, I'm kind of upbeat. And because uh, we were establishing some new programs at Hoover. But before I, I mention that, everybody knows something's wrong with the university in general and the humanities and particularly history in particular. Now, now what, is that, what is wrong with that? And that is you go to Barnes & Noble, you see these wonderful books on World War I, the Civil War, George Washington. And then you go to a university bookstore and you see, you know, these narrow, narrow, narrow volumes. In my field, I got excited by, you know, M.I. Finley, uh, The World of Odysseus, or The Roman Revolution. But what happened is, is this PhD mentality grew. It's in it's about 150 years. It was specialized. And the academics took it over. So you had to be the authority 
in the world on your field, which meant it got smaller and smaller and smaller. You had to defend less and less. So if in the 19th century you wrote a thesis on uh, the religion of Apollo in 1920, it was the religion of Apollo in Asia Minor. And then in 1940, it was the religion of Apollo at the temple of Didyma uh, in Asia Minor. And then by 1970, it was an altar in the temple of Apollo at Didyma in Asia. And then now it is, is there an Apollo temple at all, or is it a construct at Didyma? So <laughs> Nobody wants to read about that. And they no. turn and the people who were writing this, the skills that were necessary to reach out to a public, good English prose, experience with the working classes to see how they live, um, a love of the middle classes or readers. Uh, they didn't have that. They were divorced. They were kind of like monas in a monastery. And the result is what is produced by academia is unreadable. And the field is dying. So when you look at great historians and you see that there are just a few left. And so you look at Andrew Roberts, this magnificent biography of Napoleon or George III or his book, The Storm of War. He's not an academic. I mean, he's trained. You have to be trained. That's what's so ironic. So you understand source retrieval and comparison. So when you're Writing about the Peloponnesian War, if Thucydides says something, and Diodorus says something, and Plutarch says something, and the Oxyrhynchus historian says something, there's a hierarchy how to compare that evidence. And you understand scholarship and philology and archaeology and epigraphy. But those skills can be inculcated outside the university to some degree, but they don't have to be obsessive. So you get these great historians that my colleague, Neil Ferguson, you know, he writing a two-volume uh, biography of Henry Kissinger. So there are people, Paul Ray, another visiting Hoover fellow, six volumes, six-volume history of the Peloponnesian War, uh, a magnificent 1,500-page Republic's Ancient and Modern. Or you can mm -hmm. do, like my other colleague who's a visitor, Barry Strauss, a, a book, you know, on the Battle of Actium and how it changed Rome or the 12 Caesars or leadership of the emperors. But these are big, interesting topics. And you see them at the bookstores or you can get them. At, they're highly rated at Amazon. And yet that's not what academia produces. And so we're not going to make Toynbee's or Spingler's or Brudel's anymore or Prescott's. Mm -hmm. And that's why nobody's majoring in history so the specialization is killing it. And second, very quickly, it's politicized. So the university is no longer empirical. We bring people and we say, we want to teach you two things. To think inductively, example A, B, C, D, E, F, leads to a general analysis, expository conclusion. Not, I have this theory and I'm going to pick the examples to make it fit in deductive fashion. And so it's basically woke history and it's melodramatic history. It's not tragedy. History is tragedy. Two opposing forces where one is 49% bad, one's 51% good often, or there's no good choices, or Hitler's the world's greatest monster and cutthroat person and very good people allowed him through appeasement, very nice people like Neville Chamberlain or Stanley Ball. They weren't bad people. But good people, by not stopping evil, can do a lot of evil. That's what history is. Instead, it's let's round up all the people who are not white, male, heterosexual, Christian, Westerners, 
and they are the victimized. And we're going to go and retell the story as a melodrama, like a TV show, and show how these awful victimizers, as if, you know, I said that before, as if a young girl, 18, and her parents, uh, you know, 33 in 1849, going across the Oregon Trail, battling cholera, poor immigrants from a congested Europe are trying to find a good life, and they're attacked by Native Americans who, who butcher them, and they fight back. They're not evil people. That's a collision of culture. So that's the second thing that happened to history. It became politicized. And then finally, very quickly, military history was history. Think of the father, so-called father of history, Herodotus. It was the history of the Persian War. Thucydides, the next great historian, history of the Peloponnesian War. Polybius, the history of Rome's expansion in a military sense. And so military history was sort of saying to the world, time gets compressed during war. People do amazing things, both evil and good, but it is a intensification of what people do. The United States starts World War II with an army that's smaller than Portugal's, and it ends up putting 12 and a half million people in uniform. It starts off with a large economy, the world's largest, but anemic. It ends up with an economy larger than all of the combatants on both sides combined. Why? Because people in times of war are frenzied, frenzied. They do things, and it's fascinating. And yet it's been bastardized as if, you know, you say to an oncologist, I'm not going to talk to you because you study cancer tumors and therefore you love cancer. <laughs> because a person is a military historian doesn't mean he likes war. He wants to learn how to prevent it and save lives. But the diminishment of military history. So anyway, at Stanford now, there's this effort. Uh, it's spearheaded by four or five of us. And we're trying to restore history on the campus and maybe a civics program and Neil Ferguson has got the history project where he gets broad historians to come speak. I've got four or five classical historians are visiting, but we have this military history and contemporary conflict program, which is now in its 12th year. And we publish something called Strategica. That's with a K online magazine. I try to get two different views. So every three weeks we have a topic, Ukraine, point A, 750 words op-ed, don't get involved. It's going to lead to a nuclear war. Point B, you've got to get involved. It's a moral question. And then a backgrounder, 2,000-word essay, something like, let me tell you whether Ukraine was always a part of Russia, sometimes that relation. And so we're trying to get not one particular view. And then we bring in 30 or 40 every year scholars, and they are historians in the university, but they're generals, they're military analysts, they're dipl ex-diplomats, they're freestanding scholars, and we put them in a room, and I moderate, and they go at it for one day. And out of that, we take notes, and then we try to have further issues reflect those conversations. And it's been fascinating, and we have people who fund it in the uh, donor community, and then they, they visit, and they give me a, a very important feedback. And so... We're trying to restore history to its proper place, not just in the university, but in the lives of all of us. And it's so sad that people watch history channels or they watch PBS films or they go to the, when I go to the Barnes and Noble, I see people packed in history reading volume. And yet when you look at the enrollment in history or you look at the types of things professors are teaching 
They're not disinterested. They're not empirical. They're zealous. They're narrow. They're specialized. They're hypercritical. They're cannibalistic. And the classes are just so dry, you know, come on here. Let me teach you what a horrible place you live in. And by the way, this country was flawed at its birth. It got worse during its adolescence. And now in its senality, it's hopeless and has to be junk. That's basically the message on U.S. (laughs) history. And then, then nobody ever says to them, okay, then why are 2 million people trying to die to get into this country? And why does nobody leave this country? And why, when anybody gets in the jam all over the world, whether it's Ukrainians or anybody, they say, come and help me. So that's what we're trying to deal with. And I've been kind of obsessed with it. Between the house and that project, I've been really obsessed. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're saying that the history of warfare has really died in the universities. And maybe that's why we kind of have a sense of, a worry, I guess you would say, when our politicians talk about war and warfare, that that something's not quite right, that they may not know what they're talking about. They don't because understand we really don't get any training. Yeah, we don't, they don't get understand the turns. They don't understand that most wars don't end in the way that people think they're going to end. Most, I'll just give you an example. If you studied military history and you looked at the Ukraine war, you would say the following. I know that Russia had these shock and awe episodes of Georgia, Crimea, but those were very limited engagements against a very small area. But Russia, whether it goes in, whether it goes into Finland in 1939, whether it goes into Poland in 1920, whether it goes into Poland in 1939 with the Nazis, you know, they divide, it didn't do well. Yeah. It never does well. It didn't do well in Afghanistan, but you're Charles XII from Sweden, you're Napoleon, you're Hitler, you dare to go into Russia. And something happens. The country is so vast, the people get aroused about Mother Russia. And so Putin is not going to do well because he went into a huge country like Texas. And he thought it would be odd and shock, like little Chechnya could be destroyed or it could be overwhelmed like Osatia, Georgia. But it was a different idea. And that expeditionary army is not very good. Yeah. So people could have, I think, anticipated that much better. And now we're going to the deterrence. Every day or so, Putin is threatening the use of nuclear weapons. How do you deal with that historically when somebody threatens nuclear weapons and you're a nuclear power? Do you threaten in kind? You, you have to have some knowledge of history, how to deal with the present from knowledge of the past. I was going to ask you about the nuclear poker played by Putin with his, you know, whether he would or would not use nuclear weapons. And I did a little reading for this. And so I came down to two suggestions on this, that he might use a tactical nuclear weapon to get the other side to back down, to get the Ukraine to back down. There was this suggestion, I found this one much more interesting, that he might not use a nuclear weapon because China has a no first use policy and they wouldn't want to offend China because China's backing them right now. <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. That I think I would crazy. pass on that one. I don't think the Chinese have told <laughs> okay. ever told the truth and they don't believe in the truth. So they just say certain things and they're malleable depending on circumstances they make the necessary adjustments as they say so what uh, is putin going to do with his all his various threats well we know 
that the first phase of the war, shock and awe, more of Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, more of Crimea, more of Georgia, Asia, didn't work. And he had no idea the Ukrainians would fight that bad, He that vigorously in defense of their cities. He had no idea the amount of Western aid and anti-aircraft and anti-tank weaponry that was in the possession of people who were far more motivated fighting for their families than conscripts or even their professional mercenaries were invading somebody else's home. So that failed or the war would be over. He had no idea the sanctions would be so, I mean, there's, they're porous and people are lying about saying, but they're pretty severe and they're starting to destroy the Russian economy. He had no idea about world opinion. Okay. So he went to plan B and plan B was, I've lost 15 to 20,000 people. What am I going to tell the Russian people? Because it's going to get out in an interconnected world. So maybe I can say that all of those hot spots along the border, the Donbass and all of the Russian majority speaking areas that were sites of constant war in the last decade, I institutionalized those as Russian. They are now formally Russian. They'll never be back. And I will, Mariupol and all of the Crimea area, and that's about what he's going to get. But to get that, he is now in the more rolling plains of eastern Ukraine conducting a World War II-like Soviet campaign. I think he thinks he is. Artillery strikes, overwhelming armor thrust, and he wants to get these teams of javelin shooters and SAM shooters out in the open because they don't have the same degree of tactical air support and armor and artillery. But there's a problem with that, and that is they are being armed at a rapid rate, and very soon they will have parity in arms and even superior in arms with Putin. And each day that he's not winning, he's losing because he's losing a lot of people. And number three is, and this is what's dangerous, he's also saying to the Ukrainians and to the Americans, if you keep fighting me and you don't give me these borderlands in my reduced agendas, I'm going to take Kiev to my border, you know, state the size of Arizona, and I'm going to make it hell. I'm going to blow up its cities. I'm going to bomb it. I'm not going to go into the streets and fight as a, you know, Leningrad or Stalingrad. And it's going to be a buffer zone. And I'm going to do this to show the Baltic states, uh, Belarus, all of these former Soviet republics. I may not be able to do much other than reclaim land along my borders, thin strips where there's a lot of Russians. But if you Europeanize or Westernize, I am going to, through air power, make your cities unlivable. And more importantly, I'm going to show you that the West either cannot or will not do anything about it. And that's what he's hoping on. Yeah. Now, we in the West say, okay, but now all of these countries, we only had six of 30 members could meet their measly 2% investments in budget investments in military preparedness. Now they're, they're, they're all rushing above that. Even oh, really nice. So NATO is going to be, you know, it's, it's going to have an army of a half a million people. It's got sophisticated weapons and it's not going to be, well, should we go into Iraq? Should we go into Afghanistan? It's we're going to protect Europe. And so it's had an unforeseen valuable. I don't know how long that will last, but a valuable effect on NATO. And then this is really weird. Maybe the listeners can help me. 
I remember when Ronald Reagan wanted to put, just kind of do the same thing for Europe, pushing, pushing two uh, tactical missiles, not nuclear, although they, some, could, some could easily be outfitted with nuclear warheads. And that was the point, obviously. But tactical missiles, missile for missile to balance the Soviets' SS-10s, which were tactical. You know, they had a 500-mile range. You put a nuclear warhead on, maybe a kiloton or two, 15th or 14th as powerful as Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And then you could take out a, a city with it. And that created deterrence. So then Reagan said, if you're going to do that, we're going to put, you know, in East, right along the border with East Germany, we're going to put Pershing missiles and they can take out a lot of your cities. How do you like that? Well, aside from our strategic arsenal and there. And Europe went crazy. The left, warmonger. Remember the movie The Day After? What, yeah. what's, what's, what I'm getting at is all these Democratic senators, all these op-ed writers, all these blog. they're all now, we've got to go in there and give them, get American pilots. We've got to get American people on the ground. We've got to sell them sophisticated warthogs. I'm thinking, wow, where did you guys come out of? And I think it's in a weird way in their mind, you know, the great battles of their age are over now that Mueller failed, the Alpha Bank failed, the hundred laptop hoax failed. Donald Trump is more popular than Joe Biden. Joe Biden, they needed a cause. And the cause is this is Russian collusion, Putin, Putin, Putin is Trump, or whatever. So they they coalesce around hating this man. And he's a despicable person. But my point is that they're really blood and guts. They're calling for a very aggressive saber rattling that's every bit as ferocious as some of the Republicans are calling for with a nuclear power with 7,200 nukes. And they've never said that about China. I have a sneaking suspicion that if we wake up next week and China is, you know, parachuting troops and having amphibious landings on Taiwan, they'll say, well, it's lost. It's lost. And I don't know why that is. Maybe they think that Taiwanese are kind of like conservative minorities or right-wing minorities. They don't like them or they... They have too many business deals with China and they're leveraged or they still have their, remember their days in their, you know, UC Santa Cruz dorm with their Mao hat on, the red star. I don't know what it is, but they have an empathy for Ukraine that they do not have for Taiwan. And they have a, uh, a willingness to go to the nuclear brink against Putin that they do not have with the Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right on that. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, do you think he'll use a tactical nuclear weapon, meaning a small one? You do. One? Nobody's ever done that. No, I, I, I don't know if he will. I'm asking you if you think he will. Well, I mean, nuclear poker—it's like regular poker, right? You are enigmatic. You don't talk loudly with a stick. So, yeah. See, so he's we'll see now what he does. he's trying to talk loudly, and he's saying. You know, I might, if any country supplies people, people do not, we have a different nuclear doctrine than you do. We're going to a next level. But I think people in the West, Macron said, well, we have a nuclear return. People just say, all you have to say is NATO allies and NATO members will be sacrosanct. They will not be touched. They will not be intimidated. And they have a deterrent that is quite capable. And then privately, you should say to yourself, what in the blank were we doing the last 40 years when under Obama, to take one example, we reduced our deplorable nuclear weapons from down to 1,500 and we were going down to 500? 
that was insanity. And, and then they said, well, you know, 10 weapons will blow up the world. It doesn't matter whether how many weapons. It's that the primitive Neanderthals in the world count nuke for nuke. We may not. We may be so, you know, we're Eloy. They're Morlocks. And they look at us and they say, we're going, you're building down. Oh, we have more nukes than you do. We'll be aggressive because nobody can use them. So we'll have a more conventionally aggressive army. So we were losing deterrence. And then second, for 50 years, the left has had one thing in common. Every ballistic missile defense plan they've opposed. They opposed it under Nixon. They opposed it under Reagan. They made fun of Star Wars. They opposed it, of course, under Trump. And yet right now, if Barack Obama had not dismantled, remember that tell Vladimir that I can be flexible on missile defense if he just gives me some space in my last election, we would, Poland and the Czech Republic would have a missile defense system, not a sophisticated one, but they would have one. And had we spent just a fraction of the money that we wasted on, I plead guilty that the war in Iraq was a trillion dollar fiasco. And had we spent money, though, on these other projects, we're doing all these green projects and created a sophisticated missile defense system, we'd be in a much better situation. And I hope we can do that as quickly as possible. Yeah. I think I people like- are going to wise up from Ukraine and there's going to be a bipartisan consensus to, to create missile defense. Yeah. And just a footnote to this conversation, I noticed that Germany is making a move to end its Russian gas imports at the end of this year. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a little bit too little, a little too late. They have (laughs) a very strange, uh, their leadership is very strange. You know, they're all making money. Schroeder, the ex-chancellor is over there on Gazprom. He's a multi, multi millionaire. So the wealthy German elite is knee deep with Russian gas and oil. And, but the way they rationalize it is they have this weird apologetic, we have to atone for the sins of the Third Reich that invaded your country and killed 20 million Russians. And we still, you know, every once in a while, you know, that was tragic. It was horrible. And I'm glad they lost. But there were also 13 million Germans that had lived since 1500 in East Prussia and parts of, you know, Eastern Europe. And they had to walk back and two million of them, two million of them died. My point is that I don't believe they're sincere about that. I think they're just saying that as a way of saying we're going to get rich with the Russians and because we, we feel so bad we treated them badly. And we're going to act against the interests of the German people, which is not to enrich Russia. But we're going to do it because we're so humane. And a lot of cap, you know, a lot of our corporate big crony capitalists do act in that fashion. They always go to China. And, you know, it wasn't people in the NBA, was it Steve Kerr or some one of those guys said, well, you know, they don't commit mass shootings like we do. And they always get on this humanitarian high horse to lecture people why they're getting rich in Chinese joint projects. It's kind of despicable. Yeah, so it is. It is. Well, I mean, I mean, they are in this particular policy going to try to not enrich Russia by not buying gas from them, but they're going to wait till the end of the year to do that. So, well, they said, I mean, there are World War II, they had a pretty successful coal conversion plant. There's a lot of coal in, in Germany. There's even some natural gas. They shut it all down. They shut their nuclear, shutting their nuclear power plants down. It was a self inflicted wound. I mean, take the most unhinged green zealot, I mean, way beyond John Kerry and Al Gore, and you, you don't approach a German zealot. You no. just don't. I mean, they are 
they deliberately destroyed their energy sector. And I don't know, understand, but it was a gift to the rest of the world that competes with Mercedes and Audi and things that our energy is just a fraction of their cost. Yeah. So let's take a moment to listen to some messages and we'll be right back to talk about the border. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. Um, our border is a mess. I, everybody knows that. But I just give you a few statistics right now and a few um, points, and then I can hear what maybe you can convince me why the Democrats are still doing this. But Title 42 is set to be repealed by May 23rd. There were in March 221,303 illegals apprehended at the border. The policy disapproval of the Biden administration is at 60% usually or thereabouts on this issue consistently. So my question is, don't the Democrats get it? I mean, can you make sense of it for me? Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to make sense because it's lunatic. It doesn't make any sense. You're right to, to pose the question that way. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense because they all want to be reelected the midterms and Biden or whoever is controlling Biden wants to be reelected. And they know this consistently polls, you know, 60, 65 percent opposed to an open border. They know you can't have any credibility telling people to wear masks on planes when two million people come across without vaccination, without COVID tests and without masks. They know that these people do not have high school diplomas. They know they're not unaudited. They know there's criminals among them. They know they don't speak English. They know that they're going to be heavily dependent on social services. They know that they're going to go into marginalized communities and overwhelm the schools, the dialysis centers, the dentistry offices, and make our own poor poor. They know they drive down wages. Okay. And yet they're doing it. So why are they doing it? And the answer that I can think of is that they also know that their agenda is not acceptable to 51% of the people. They have to always have a bogeyman, a Trump or January 6th or racism, sexism, but ultimately who they are and what they do is not popular. And so in their way of thinking, the demography has to be changed. And this started with Teddy Kennedy and that Hart Seller Act, Phil Hart, the senator, yeah. And so that was 1965, where we basically said since 17, 
87 till now, this country's been 85% or 90% European and about 10% African-American, 1% other. And that's not good. So we're going to discriminate against Europeans and bring in people across the border on the basis not of meritocratic skills, which had been primarily chief criterion, but on family reunification. So they opened the border. I remember when they did it, I was a little kid and I was in a predominantly Mexican-American school, but these were second generation Mexican-American kids. And all of a sudden there were people in my fifth grade, sixth grade class that came right across the border for the first time in my life. And these were not people from Oaxaca. They were from Northern Mexico, not now. And so what I'm getting at, the Democratic Party has no confidence that its agendas appeal to people. So they want people who are in need, that are not able to be self-sufficient in a highly competitive economy, that need legal, educational, nutritional, housing subsidies, which they will then say, we are going to borrow money for for you and everybody who opposes you is a racist. That's, that's what they believe. Now, the only irony of this to finish is that as people come across and as this country proves not to be racist and not to be ethnically discriminatory, and it has a capitalist economy for a few more years, the Mexican middle class is entrepreneurial and they do very well. And as they upwardly ascend the ladder of success, they don't like an open border. So their desire to be a middle-class Americans trumps being uh, an ethnic chauvinist. They don't say, somebody who doesn't speak English, whose name is Bill Hernandez, doesn't say, I want that guy from Oaxaca to come in because he looks like me. Any more than I would say, you know what? I want that guy from Serbia to come in just because he looks like me. I have no affinity necessarily, or yes or no, with somebody who says he's white, right? And I think and so what I'm getting at is they already don't want Cubans to come in. They do not want Venezuelans to come in. And I think we're going to get to the point where this open borders is going to create such a backlash among the Democratic constituency that a lot of them, they won't want Mexicans in because they're saying, you know, this works for us for one generation, but we're going to create a bunch of conservative, angry Hispanics. So there is a law of unintended consequences, what I'm trying to get at. And the Democratic Party has somehow, at least according to polls, alienated half of the Latino community. And a lot of that alienation comes from that open border. And it gets people very angry. One other thing, Sammy, they do not like people who are not citizens to be treated better than citizens. By that, I mean... When you leave this country, you have to have a passport. You come in without it, you're detained at an airport. They see people walking across as if they own their country. Until just last week, you had to have a mask to be on a plane. They see people coming across without a mask. They know that if they dare uh, use a fake social security number or an alias, they're in big trouble of committing a felony. And they know people coming across, the first act they do is, is illegal an illegal entry. The second is an illegal residency. And the third is an illegal pseudonym or ID. And that gets them angry. And so it's a lose-lose situation. And you know what? It's not racist. Cesar Chavez, my gosh, that was one of the big 
agendas of the United Farm Workers stop illegal immigration. They're bringing, becoming, they're coming in and undercutting union wages for farm workers. Yeah. And that was what uh, Barbara Jordan, who was on an immigration special congressional committee, she said, this is not in the interest of African-American poor to import poor people. But who dreams all of these things up? Who dreams up male athletes stealing medals from female athletes? Who dreams up this open border? Who dreams up this racist critical race theory. It's all basically very wealthy people on the coast, you know, Upper West Side, as I proverbially say, or I don't know, Colorama in Washington, D.C., or Beacon Hill, or Atherton. Pacific Palisades. Palos Verdes, Malibu. They, They dream it up, and then they say, it's like somebody goes in and he lights a a match and he throws it into a paint store and then he walks out you see that hollywood scene where it's all blowing up and he walks out that's what they're doing and they think it's fun or they feel good i don't know why they do it i think it has some kind of psychological release of their own guilt that they don't feel comfortable people that don't look like them because every time i meet these people every time i meet them and i meet them all the time it's not more than two seconds with their name dropping their car their new remodeled kitchen, juniors yeah. at Harvard, the daughter is at Yale. They went to Stanford. I mean, they live on zip code identification. They live on cattle brand universities. They live on self-referencing. So they're not egalitarian. And so yeah. this very radical French revolutionary issue that they always adopt, it has to be psychological. They have to be doing this because... They feel that it gives them cosmic penance, and that allows them to sin. And the sin that they think they're sinning is that they're exclusionary, you know, reactionary racist, I guess. They're not, they don't feel comfortable with the working classes of any, any race. But they don't seem self-reflective in the sense that they're doing things that are ultimately going to destroy their own lives. And we've talked about it before. Some of their kids aren't getting into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford now. And it's starting to hit them on the edges of their That's one of the biggest untold stories that we're not reporting. And that is Harvard's just admitted class is 50% non-white. Well, the country is 68% white. So Harvard has said, after telling us for years that their credo was proportional representation, sorry, white people, used to be 90, you're 68, Harvard's going to be 68 white. And I don't care how we have to do it, but it is. Now they're losing repertory admission. We're going to go back to 50 to punish you for what somebody else did. And, you know, when I say punish you, when you talk about white, that's a construct, an abstraction. What does white mean? Does it mean John Kerry and Nancy Pelosi? Or does it mean somebody in Tucson, you know, on a forklift? So what they're basically saying is we do not, we don't have time. We don't have room. We don't have any interest in any white, meritocratic, middle-class kid. We've only got a, you know, we've only got for white males, for example, we got about 13% of the slots and a lot of them are for athletes. And a lot of them are for wealthy people whose parents give us a lot of money. And a lot of them are for like people like Chelsea Clinton or somebody. So sorry, you're just not going to get in. And that's what they're doing. And that also includes, though, your point is that professionals, there's a lot of very liberal people that their kids have been wanting to go to Stanford or, you know, 
Princeton for their entire lives. They played by all of their rules. They're straight A plus students, advanced placement, 4.5 GPAs, 800 SATs, and they're not getting in. They're not getting in. Yeah. And they're not talking about it. You can see, but the funny thing about it is the people who are doing this, they're all wealthy white people or Asian people. And their kids get in and their friends' kids get in and their techie billionaire friends get in. So they think they're being very progressive. They're not. They're old-fashioned bourbon. Yeah. Elitist and calcified class. And they're probably the people that are going to be the those that turn or go, as you put it, go to the voting ballot in no, this coming November and vote for the Republican. Yeah, I think not they will. They will say, them. yeah, they'll go to a cocktail party in Palos Verdes and say, gosh, so good to see those awful Republicans. I hope they lose. And then, hey, I don't think they knew that I voted for them, do they? <laughs> Did you hear that Bunny got her, got her Porsche uh, Correa? Did you hear that she got carjacked? Did you know they followed that guy home all the way to Malibu and broke into his home? Can you believe it? Yeah. Did you hear Jason didn't get into Harvard after eighth generation? That's how they talk. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a very funny class. And yeah. one of the things that's almost the most nauseating is to listen to Nancy Pelosi this week and say, well, you know, the wealthy people, the racists, the Semites, and all the, as if the, and the wealthy, she said, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You have spent your whole life unleashing your husband in his development schemes to get your insider knowledge. And somehow, somehow you're worth a hundred million bucks. Diane Feinstein's worth over a billion dollars. And guess what? you got a big, You've got a big wall around your house. You make fun of walls. If they don't work on the border, then why would they work around your estate in Napa? And who do you hang around with? Do your kids go to public schools? Why do you have two Italian ice cream freezers? And why in the middle of the COVID when people are really hurting, do you have a little film of yourself about $11 pint ice cream in your Italian freezers? So these people are nuts. And why they do you are. think that you're telling everybody that they have to obey you while you go and get your hair done without a mask or that idiot Gavin Newsom goes into the French laundry and gets that special, I don't know what, $800 meal without a mask and without social distancing. That's who they are. They're bourbon. Yeah. They, they set the law. They apply it to others. They ridicule, they disparage the middle class. And then they think, man, those suckers, they deserve what they get. I'm John Kerry. I have to use a jet because I have to serve those know nothing middle class people. Otherwise, they'll burn themselves up with gasoline and oil. But I can jet all around the world, you know, with five gallons a minute because I'm I'm a platonic guardian. That's how they think. Yeah. Almost every problem. I once had a talk. I think I mentioned it before. You know, I, I'd go to lunch with Tom every two weeks, and Tom Soul said once to me. You know, I'm just thinking about it, Victor. And he said, almost every problem that we've had, if you think about it, it came out of the university or a law department or the media. And it was always some very, very wealthy, privileged, and, and he used the word anointed, vision of the anointed person on the coast, either coast, take your pick. And he was so right, as he was yeah. about most things, as he is. 
Yeah. Well, let's move on to Ron DeSantis because he's kind of, he's very interesting in what he's challenging these people with. So if I could name three things, he's passed or signed the Parental Rights in Education Act. He now, with his Senate and his House in Florida, are going to slap on Disney, who was touting their own policies of gender identity and sexual orientation in their own entertainment. He's now going to slap on them a, what do you, what do you call that? A, a taking back of their special status as an independent special district zone, which probably cuts a lot of taxes for them. So they're planning on taking that back. And the third thing that DeSantis is doing is now that the Twitter board has threatened Elon Musk with their poison pill strategy, or they're applying their poison pill strategy. Ron DeSantis is threatening to hold the board accountable for breaching their fiduciary duties. And I just find he's really assaulting all of these things just so <laughs> openly and bravely. And I love how he's just so matter of fact when he gets up and talks. Oh, he's about very it. I was good. wondering what your thoughts. Well, what you know, thoughts? he, He's starting to show himself as a brilliant politician because he's confronted with a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. Everybody agrees now that the Republican Party is skeptical of open trade with China. It wants a closed border. It's not the Chamber of Commerce open border anymore. It's not neoconservative nation building and go over and fight a war in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's restore the industrial base, et cetera. So that's his agenda. But then the next criticism is, but Trump, who created it, had a fire in the belly that nobody else had. He fought and everybody said, you know, he may be an SOB, but he's my SOB. And that guy will fight for me. He's not afraid. Well, so DeSantis is processing this and he thinks, well, there's no there's no question that all of us are going to have the MAGA agenda. OK, but the, the dilemma is that people feel that Trump was a fighter, but he went down cul-de-sacs sometimes with the tweets and he got into the psychodrama back and forth with Stormy Daniels and they did not like that 10 or 15%. So what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to fight just like Trump does. I'll take on anybody, but I'm not going to go into this tit for tat tweet stuff. So it's going to be very fascinating to watch. And it's, you can see how he's made the never Trumpers in a dilemma because they always said when they were pressed, okay, Gorsuch was a good, you know, a good appointment. Okay. I like the, the Trump anti-inflationary policies, or I don't like the deregulation, or I like most of the judicial picks, or I like energy insufficient, or I like helping out Israel, you know, the Golden Heights is going to be Israelis and moving the embassy, or I like the idea of the Iran. Okay. All of that, but he's a fraud. He's all that stuff. Well, now they got somebody who, has that whole agenda, but he's Harvard trained, he's professional, and he fights. And guess what? They don't like him. There's something National Review today by a former colleague of mine when I wrote for the magazine saying that he's unfair on Disney. Think of that. Think of what Disney did. Disney said to Florida and the world, we are Walt's company. And we, for generation upon generation upon generation, are giving you wholesome family entertainment. And therefore, we have to be exempt. 
in a way no other company quite in our business is. So if there is a copyright on Mickey Mouse after a half century, you've got to extend it so that we don't have fake knockoff Mickey Mouses or we need tax concessions or we need virtual political and legal autonomy for Disney World. And they got it. And all of a sudden, DeSantis is coming. Well, no, that wasn't a bad deal. We both profited. You brought a lot, millions of people to Florida. You enriched the United States. But you know what? It's leaked out that you don't like the nuclear family. The majority of Americans are heterosexual. You were bragging about how you're trying to indoctrinate people. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not on the vendetta. I just, I'm not going to give you these concessions. I'm going to treat you like any other company. And then the left goes crazy. Well, you're after Disney which they hated. They always hated Walt Disney as a reactionary pro-American corporate person. So he's threaded that needle really well. He's Trump without the supposed downside so far. And the never Trump, he drives them crazy because there's no reason not to vote for him if you're really a conservative. And they're not a conservative. They never were, but they say they are. And then the left doesn't quite know how to do them. They just want him to tweet or they want him to comb his hair over one side or where a tide was growing or, or you know, where suntan or anything they can get on him. But they they can't. No. And so what he's doing and he's not saying I'm running for president. He's, and he's you know, he's beholden to Trump because he had a tough governor's race and he might have lost to that nut you know the guy that ended up half naked in a hotel room on drugs <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> who, who i guess with a prostitute was yeah, it was yeah it a or male a prostitute? call boy or something and he said he was dis <laughs> he was disorientated and all this stuff he and the, most of the democrats of that state wanted that man to be governor and he would be <laughs> now but trump endorsed him so he's loyal but i think what we're seeing is and trump is you know people forget that every now and then trump lets out little tidbits that, you know, when a doctor calls you and says, I need to see you again, that's bad news. Does that mean somebody called Trump and said that? And Trump admits now he's not the, you know, the Adonis that he told everybody. He's he's going to be 79. He'd be older than Biden if he were to be elected. And, you know, he's a little heavy and he takes, you know, some drugs that have some long-term side effects, perhaps. So, He's and this information is coming from Trump. And then we know that his family doesn't want him to. So I'm not convinced that Trump is going to run. I'm I think there's a 30 to 40 percent chance he's going to be senior statesman and people will flock down there like these senatorial candidates are in the primaries for his endorsement. But DeSantis has been so far very, very clever. And I, I think everybody's. The $64,000 question is, we need a governor in a purple state, or it used to be a purple state, who can be competent and have that executive experience so necessary to be president with a temperament and knowledge. And we thought we had it with George W. Bush and then the Iraq and all that stuff. And we thought we had it with Scott Walker and he melted down. But maybe DeSantis will be the great stone face, you know, that Nathaniel Hawthorne short story where everybody looked at that mountain and they saw that face and they said, whoever looks like that face will be the promised savior of us. And it turned out to be the little boy. They just looked, they never noticed. It was a great short story. Maybe he'll be the great stone face. Yeah. And he should continue his efforts to govern Florida well and not talk about running for president. I think that exactly that looks really good on him. It really does. It does. So. It, it does. Right. He's a professional and he fights. Everybody says, you know what? 
a lot of people just say the left one. I, I, they just say something. I talk to so many of them. They say they want to destroy us. They just don't want, they want to destroy. They hate everything about traditional America and yeah. they're, they're crazy. And we got to fight back and we can't play by the Marcus of Queensbury rules anymore. Yeah. And Romneyism is dead. McCainism is dead. Bushism is dead. We need somebody that will say, you know what? I'm not ashamed to be supportive of the American middle class. And if somebody's driving to work in a pickup, he's not Satan. He's not, a, you know, heating up the planet. The person who's heating up the planet is John Kerry in his private jet. All right, Victor, let's take a moment for some messages and then come back and talk a little bit about women. How about that? Oh, boy. We'll be right back. As if I know anything about women. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right. Welcome back. Yeah, I have some questions on the judge who Catherine Kimball, I think it's Mizell, who overturned the mask mandate or really what she did was write an opinion where she argued that the Administrative Procedures Act government did not allow for the required period for public comment on their mask mandate, that they lacked specificity on the type of mask, and that the claim that it was covered under the sanitation clause was did not hold up. And so those were her judgments. And I was wondering your thoughts on really, is this going to stick? I mean, it sounds like Everybody in the airplanes pulled off their mask and everybody outside the airplanes was thinking, yeah, that's a good idea. And so what do you think about that? Well, they hate her now, of course, and they're demonizing Judge Mazzell and said, oh, she was a Trump lackey. She went to Florida. She went to Bible college to get her B.A. She went to Florida law school as if these people that graduate with reduced admittance standards or if so do my ears, you know, Einstein. But that's that's how the left thinks. And so they they've tried to do um, demonize her, and actually she's she's done a lot of things. They, who cares where the Cal- the American Bar Association as if there had ever been disinterested in the past, and especially in the current climate. So what she was saying is that we don't have to have a judge, jury, and executioner bureaucrat decide whether you have your personal freedoms or not. And notice which. With these masks, they're very interesting. They stayed the same whether COVID was in California, you know, 100 cases or 8,000. And it just stayed there. And it did not modulate according to the tempo of the pandemic. 
And then they said, it's the science. Well, it's not the science. I mean, there's a study that came out of Bangladesh that said that people that wore the proper N95, it was, they reduced it by 9%. If you didn't wear a mask, it was like eight. If you look at the states like California and New York, Chicago, that were mass obsessive compared to Florida and Texas, there was just marginal uh, less transmission. And when you say mask, it's a construct. <laughs> I've got a drawer of masks. I don't even know what they are. People send them to me. They're beautiful, some of them. They're cloth masks. They're, at, they're things that have insignia on them. They go around your ears. They go around your head. I, for years, farming used an N95 3M mask. It had two rubber straps, one for your head, one below your ears, and it worked pretty well, and it was very uncomfortable. And when I would drive a tractor, I'd throw it off because I couldn't breathe. And we put those. Those are the only things that work. Did Fauci ever say, wear an N95 mask? No, he didn't. So people, you know, you go to the store and there's some guy with a handkerchief or tears off half his T-shirt or whatever. So that was a joke. And then they were never enforced in the sense that Nancy Pelosi or Gavin Newsom or a Mayor Brand in San Francisco or Fauci at a foot baseball. They just are. Remember Chris Cuomo and taking up running around with a mask off. So they wore them on ceremonial occasions. And then when they got together, they didn't. And, you know, there was, you know, super spreader. Donald Trump had a super spreader event where people did not wear masks. Well, they were all masked up for Obama's party and they got that was a super spreader event. They just had one a media event in Washington where they, they all got sick. They all had masks on. So yeah. this is a very small, I mean, you don't need a lot of viral load. It's very, it's micronized to the nth degree, the viral. And it, it's, and then the, the other thing gets me really angry. They advertise. I went back and looked at the rhetoric from Collins and Fauci. It was the same as a vaccination. Don't worry about anybody else. If you get vaccinated, you're protected know that you can't infect people and they can't infect you and know that if you have a mask, even if the guy next to you doesn't, that viral will be stopped and you won't get it. But then that just sort of didn't work. So then they said, it's not just for you, it's for everybody. And that guy over there who doesn't have a mask is endangering me with a mask. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. My mask is not what I said it was. And so the whole rhetoric and narration change i never they never ever corrected it and then it's very think of the damage we did to all these small children you yeah. know it's like scott atlas said he laughed once i was listening to a lecture the two areas that were the most likely not to get it very few airline attendants when you recycle the air every three minutes and sterilize it on a plane are your children that have a very low propensity. And yet those are the people that we mask up the most on planes and children. And then when you had these unelected bureaucrats setting policy, whether it was Fauci saying, you know what, COVID's so bad this month that you don't have to collect your, pay your rent. Who, in a free society, who gave him that power? And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. who gave him that power? and then we had this, we turned the United States that I said the other night on Laura's that uh, Ingram's that we turned it into Eastern Europe circa 1960, where everybody became a snitch. And then all of the nomenclatura, the wealthy people were exempt. And then the bureaucrats ran the country with, and that's what masking was. And that's what social distancing was, except 
If you want to go out and protest for BLM and Antifa in June 2020, then 1,100 doctors who, quote, follow the science, will write a public letter and saying these people are exempt. They don't have to wear masks and they don't have to social distance because it would be injurious to their mental health. And that's what they wrote. And if you're going to come across the border from Mexico that has an epidemic, then screw Title 42, just come across. Mm, yeah. So that, yeah, America had all of those you know, conflicts going on. But what I find interesting right now is we've just had the mask release from flights, from in-flight experience. And at the same time in China, in Shanghai, they are enforcing this really cruel lockdown on people, like locking them, can't come out of their apartments for weeks on end. I mean, it's a very strange dichotomy between that Shanghai lockdown and the United States, which seems to be increasingly I don't know if it's throwing caution into the wind or maybe just rationally having a better policy for COVID, right? I think Um, what's happened is the left, the left told us if you wore a mask and you social distance, you cocooned in your home and you got 50,000 boosters, you were going to be okay. And then the likes of Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and Jen Psaki got COVID. And they got boosted. And then they, they kind of went back to a felt. It was a logical thing to do. They got to a fallback position. They said, okay, erase all that. But we didn't get very sick. And we didn't go to the hospital. So hospitalizations are bad. So, wow, I got COVID. I got a slight fever. And I got over. It's like the flu. Well, we don't do this for the flu. But we told everybody it wasn't like the flu. So maybe we'll just kind of be quiet about it. So notice that they're going to sort of kind of object to this judicial ruling about the mask, but not really because it's very popular. And yeah. so they're, they're going to let it stand. Yeah. And that's the way they are. I mean, the, even the title 42, where it gives them the right under that 1944 law to deport people immediately from countries that have epidemics. I don't think they're going to get rid of it. I think they're going to say to the left, oh, we can't can't quite do it because they don't want that those optics. And yeah. you know what the optics are going to be? They're going to be horrific because what's mm-hmm. happening, Sammy, to make it clear to everybody. And I, I said this three months ago on a Fox show, and I've been saying it with Jack and you. I don't think this is a 10 or 20 seat pickup. Everybody said, well, the house is even, so you can't win 50 seats because when you won 50 seats before you were down 20, but that would be, you know, 50 from them and 50 for us is a hundred. And that's just an unimaginable. I think it is. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be a huge blowout and I think they know it. And yet they know they can't change because their ideologues and the left won't let them. But now they're sort of saying, Kind of, let's kind of, you know, let's kind of control the border just a teeny weeny bit. Let's just kind of say that this woman is a Trump judge, but kind of let people not have to wear masks. And and let's kind of, you know, like maybe have some new federal leases a little bit or get some oil in the back door from Saudi Arabia or drain that damn strategic petroleum reserve. 
It's just think, kind of move towards the center. I, kind of, but never admit it. And yet <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work because you don't, I think people, I hope so. I, don't I hope think it's, it's not going to work. I hope it's not going to work. One of the reasons it's not going to work is now this is very important. I think everybody agrees with this. We have been told that Joe Biden was good old Joe Biden from Scranton. And he's now your grandfather and he's going to bring, that was a lie. That guy was a racist he was, an, he was mean. He was a bully. He was nutty. He was a plagiarist. His two, 1988 campaign blew up because he lied about his resume. He confronted people and made fun. I'm smarter than anybody in this room. When he ran for office in 2008, he was obnoxious. And that Tara Reid story was absolutely convincing when her mother mentioned it on a radio show that had just talked to her daughter. He had a creepy, very creepy propensity to get in the physical space of young girls and blow in their hair. And I don't know what, it was, it was just creepy. He swam nude in front of the Secret Service. He was never a nice person. So this idea that he's good old Joe, he's not. And now that he doesn't have his veneer of, you know, compost mentas, he's not. So what he's doing is he's showing us the, what we always knew he was, and he's obnoxious, and he's mean-spirited in addition to being – I'm not saying he's not sympathetic sometimes. When you saw Obama and he was kind of like a billiard ball that bounced around that room that nobody wanted to talk to, or he went around for that magical handshake and it was like, what am I going to do? Or he had an Easter bunny plant that was a thing. You know, you, know, you get the impression that his aides say, you wear the Easter bunny. Uh, you, you act like you're a parent. Who's got, who's got your eye on him over there? Turn him around and point him in the right direction. Whispering is your what he's supposed to say. That's, and then he'll say, they, they tell yeah. me. Oh, yeah. And so that is sympathetic because we have a rendezvous with that. A lot of us do. I feel like I'm yeah. denial all the time. But yeah. my point is, he's not a nice sympathetic and the voters know that. And he does not, he's a force multiplier of the unpopularity. I was in, of course, where was I this week? Home Depot, buying materials. And I was talking to a guy that had pipe and, you know, we were talking about the price of pipe. It went from $3.95 for ABS sewer pipe to $32 for a 10-foot section. And mm. he said to me, he turned around and said, I hate that guy. I said, who do you hate? He goes, I hate that Biden. He did this. I hate the way he looks. <laughs> I hate the way he sounds. And I thought, Wow. <laughs> This guy has a very strong Mexican accent. And I thought he liked Biden because the open border. And he went on on a rampage. I hate that guy, the way he looks. I hate the way he talks. I hate the way he screams. I hate it. <laughs> because he did this to me. I can't even do, do my work now. And I thought, wow, you probably voted for him. So I yeah. said, well, I'm glad. I just said to him, I'm glad you didn't vote for him. Silence. <laughs> Silence. But I mean, he has that effect on people. I know there's people yeah. listening. And they're saying, Victor, for once you're right, <laughs> I don't like the guy. He's obnoxious. He growls. He scorns. He looks like a, a, an albino iguana. He does. <laughs> he looks like some reptilian you know, figure uh, that's shedding the skin. It's tragic, I know, but he was never nice. Yeah. We all rooted for corn pop, not him. We wanted corn pop to beat the crap out of him, to take that six-foot chain and wrap it around his neck and hit him and say, you know what? Or we like that guy who he slammed his kid's head down. We wish the guy had it. He probably did. And when he said he was going to take Donald Trump behind the gym when Trump said, I'd like to see him try, I wish <laughs> that happened. So we always rooted for the, the villain of, 
uh, of Joe Biden. Joe <laughs> yeah, it was mythologies. We always did. We never wanted to decide with Joe Biden. And that Joe Biden Scranton was just a joke. It was a construct. This was a money grabbing, gifting uh, family mafioso shakedown corporation. And as soon as that guy got in the vice president's office, they turned those guys loose. Mayor of Moscow's wife or the the Clinton had hit up and the Chinese and Ukrainians. Ukrainians. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Suddenly the guy's got all these beautiful homes and we're supposed to assume that he paid his full taxes and he made it on government salary. A government salary. The lies. I just think of the lies the other day. Think of the lies. Trump exaggerated and fibbed, but Joe Biden said he hit a home run in this congressional game. He said he's what, had a million miles of commuting um, Wasn't he Amtrak. a professor at some university? Yeah, he said he was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> never caught a class, except he got a ton of money for it. So he said he drove a semi. Can you imagine right. Joe Biden in a semi? It's just constant, and it's pathological. So I don't well, know. Now that he's senile, you kind of think maybe it's in his dreams he's driving a semi or something like that. I don't want to know what's in his dreams. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a frightening concept. You left me. Now we're ending this. Yeah, we're I'm going to be walking Hunter around. Again. I'm thinking, oh, wow, Joe Biden's dreams. What are those? We're going to we're ending with Hunter again and wondering who was he making those videos for? Maybe it was Joe. <laughs> so I keep saying I know people are going to get bored because they say, Victor, don't keep beating a dead horse but there was one picture with i don't know whether it was the the angle or the light or he actually twisted his hair in the back he looked like a goat horn you know but they looked like little dead did you see that where he has that sly little smile and he has that kind of goatee and he has devil horns that's right and the the light in the room is kind of reddish i thought that guy with that twinkle in his eye i know what he's doing he's trying to tell those grifters that he carried them and he did say that he yeah, said, I carried yeah. you. you, And I didn't take 50% like Pop did. <laughs> and he's saying, you know what? I'm going to bring all of you down. You think that you're going to say good old Hunter is a crook and he's a crackhead and he leaves his crack pipe or his laptop anywhere he goes. Okay. I leave a trail everywhere I go and I embarrass you, but I made you all rich and you never appreciated <laughs> that. So Joe Biden is a president now. And I can't do my business. And he's now <laughs> blaming me indirectly. He's leaking about me. So I'm going to go start up an art career and start selling this to Chinese lobbyists for a half a million dollars. <laughs> now you like that. And if you think you're going to put a lid on that, think of what I'm going to do next. You think That's I've right. lost a, a crack pipe or a, hunter, a, a laptop or two? Wait till I do a lot of crazy crap. You better be careful. <laughs> so I think in a weird way, he's got some kind of psychological blackmail. Yeah, he, he does. Definitely. Now he's in Malibu at what twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars a month. Where does oh, he get that God. money? Yeah. He pay taxes on it. Secret yeah. Service or watching them. Doesn't he? Doesn't he owe a million dollars in taxes? Like, didn't the IRS at least get him for that? I thought he they, that he. There's had people some... in this audience who know that if they made a mistake on their taxes for five thousand dollars, <laughs> they get some kind of letter that says we're going to charge you a point and a half interest per month. And we're going to adjudicate whether this was criminally intended. And yeah, they know that. And yet, this, this is, is what's obs- weird. We this all is love obscene. this country. Yeah, this we is all obscene. love this country. This country was created in opposition to the corruption of Europe. 
and it's oligarchic, dynastic, aristocratic classes. So when we see this, we say, shame on these people. You're to betray the American founding, that everybody is equal under the law. Yeah. And, and, you know, a man's house is his kingdom. And yeah. we're all going to be accountable to, and that's why they have a little blindfold around the Statue of Justice. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I get really tired of this aristocratic idea that the laws don't, I'm James Comey and I'm going to lie 245 times. I'm John Brennan and I'm going to swear that those computer staffers, computer, the Senate staffers' computer were never tapped by a lie, lie, lie. Who cares? I'm CIA director. Okay, so let's end this with the masks have been taken off on airplanes and probably everywhere else in America. And the Ron DeSantis strong performance so far by not performing at all for the presidency. So he's a very brilliant, he's a brilliant, so far he's showed himself to be a very brilliant politician. He's going to have a lot of strip competition. Yeah. Mike Pompeo's a smart guy. So is Tom Cotton, Christy Nome, very charismatic. Nikki Haley is a very polypragmatic person. Yeah. And I, I'm not using that in the Greek sense, but the modern sense. And, uh, It'll be an interesting primary if Donald yeah, Trump sure will. doesn't run, or if they get if he does run, there you'll see some suicide torpedo like Chris Christie, whose job is to do to Trump the way that he did to Marco Rubio. <laughs> uh, Marco Rubio was taken out by Christie, you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he's ever coming back either, but who knows? I don't know. He's getting a little better. He's talking the mega agenda. Christie's not going to come back because he yeah. was never there to come back to. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't think he was ever a good choice. All right, Victor, we better call it quits here. And thank you very much for all of the wisdom on the current events. Really appreciate that. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off.